All righty. Cool. Well, welcome everyone to this Quorum Sense webinar, the first webinar in a series of trees and agriculture webinars that we'll be running. Um, I just want to kick off by um, acknowledging you all being here and you know taking the time to participate because really it is about participation in these webinars and you know what we get out of it is is through your guys' questions and engagement. So thank you for taking the time to be here with the live session. Um, before I hand over to Sam to introduce the panelists today, I just want to talk through the basic um, Q and A. What's going to happen with our questions feature? So basically, um, we're going to go through uh, Darren and, and Greg's presentations. And while they're going through the presentations, guys, feel free to ask questions in the Q&A and try and keep them to the Q&A. Go hard on the chats for general chit chat, but questions, we really want to send them to the Q&A and we want to have people engaging and bumping posts up to the top for those questions that people are really burning to ask. Um, feel free to ask them directly at Darren or Greg or both, and we'll go and address those questions at the end of uh, Greg and Darren's presentation. Um, so thank you for being here and I'm going to hand it over to Sam. Great, thanks Jono and uh, we'll crack straight into it. So first up we've got Darren Doherty, um, real privilege to have you here um, with us Darren um, from over the ditch. We don't see many from over the ditch at the moment. Um, and yeah, I met Darren probably, oh, it must have been four or five years ago actually when I was um, working at Greg Hart's place, ironically, um, and I've had the privilege to do two courses with Darren um, that, that have been hosted up there in Hawke's Bay, plus the online course that they run. Um, and I've just got a huge amount out of the, not only the depth of knowledge that Darren brings, but also like kind of the frameworks and decision-making processes and the way that he manages to integrate a whole lot of different things that we're probably quite familiar with in the regen space and bring it all together. Um, and just Darren just seemed like the, the perfect place to start off with with this first webinar kind of as an overview um, around trees and agriculture so um, and I told him that I wasn't going to try and um, do a poor job of introducing him and I'd let him do that himself so um, with that uh, over to you Darren thanks very much thanks Mo okay just uh, that all good and share where's that bloody thing there we go share screen is that good to go now? All right. Well, thanks everyone. And uh, thanks for, um, for all of you giving up your time to join us today. I'll just get my clock going so I don't go over time. Uh, there we go. Um, yeah, so we're talking about, well, one, one, just one layer is what I would call it of many layers that we, that we uh, look at when we're looking at integrating uh, different elements into agricultural landscapes. Um, first of all, um, similar, I'd like to acknowledge uh, where we're from and the land that I operate from and have grown up in, which is the Jarjawarung Nation here in central Victoria, which is one of some 350 or so nations that were occupied, uh, occupied this continent for a long time. And uh, just a bit of information about our climate here uh, in central Victoria as well to give a bit of context and the sort of uh, production systems that I've grown up with. My family's been in this region um, and in the region immediately north of here since the 1850s. Oops, there. Um, back out of that. Back to that. I think my 
Oh, there we go. Um, yeah, so that's really framed um, a lot of what I do. So we also work within um, what we call the Regrarians platform, um, which has 10 layers. Uh, we use layers because as planners, we tend to work in, uh, in that sort of linear thinking. And so there's the climate layer, which is much to do about the climate that we have, the meteorological climate, but then also the climate of us um, and the people that the context, uh, the context and shape of the landscape and where we are, the geography, um, the water layer and how that all looks, whether it's pipelines or dams or, or how we interact with the water cycle, uh, the access layer or the roads, but also all of the utilities that we now have and labour. Uh, the forestry layer, which is what we're going to be dealing with in part today, which we really call the agroecology layer because it's, you know, as we know, forests aren't just flora or trees. They're also composed of a whole lot of other species, buildings um, and, all, and how they are placed um, and then fencing systems and how they are integrated as well, um, soils and their management. Um, that's where we look at soils being part of the operating system um, is the way we frame it and then the economy and energy layers and their management and uh, and integration um, when we look at the the forestry layer um, the usual questions of why one looks at this layer and how <clears throat> and how trees fit for you if I could go to the how, you know, a lot of people don't identify themselves necessarily as plant people or tree people. A lot of people identify themselves maybe as cattle growers or uh, as sheep growers uh, and so on. But, you know, I don't know of any agricultural ecosystem that doesn't involve some interaction with plants. Um, and I don't know of any agricultural ecosystem that doesn't benefit from having or benefit from having or where tree species and uh, you know different forest complexes can't or shouldn't be integrated um, and then it goes from that you know once you start to think that through then um, you know what kind of trees do i want to have what sort of archetypes of look do i want to have and so on and you know i go to um, this image of uh, the the late uh, Lancelot Capability Brown's uh, landscapes across the, the United Kingdom, this really prolific landscape, self-taught landscape architect who, who really created the English um, uh, countryside in a way that, that still resonates with those of us who are from that part of the world, um, which you know, those of you well, on both sides of the ditch we are and in large part at least when people came to Australia originally they said oh it looks like an English gentleman's garden or an English gentleman's parkland and part of that nostalgia was part of that was nostalgia but part of it also um, admonished or overlooked that that was actually a created landscape that indigenous people here had curated for tens of thousands of years so now, when we look at this, I'd like people to think about what they want to create because trees are such a framing element um, to a landscape and the way that we assemble them not only has impacts on the way we, we want to manage our landscape because they're often not the only thing that we're doing. We're sort of fitting them in with our main enterprise, but how we want them to look and where they and, and how those systems will look in different parts. That's something that um, people often overlook, I think, uh, but I'd, I'd like to put that in there. 
we tend to look at this layer through trying to understand functions, uh, ecosystem functions, and how all of these, how this agroecology comes together um, as we make it more com complex. The sort of systems that we are um, trying to integrate and trying to address, um, the kind of management themes that we will have, because you know a lot of you will know um, when you plant trees or you do these things, then a lot of, well, you can just let them grow, um, and there's sometimes that's the case, but then there's other times when um, it's incumbent on you to then manage those species for different outcomes or individuals for different outcomes. Then there's the harvesting and the monitoring and the you know propagation, how you get it all. And then for those of you in fire prone areas, then how do we uh, how do we address that? I'm not going to deal with all of those today because I don't really have uh, the time frame to do so. I'm going to look more at integration and layouts and, and these other things we can perhaps uh, look at down the track or you can with uh, our friends here. I wanted to start with a slide that I've sort of adjusted um, just to look at in terms of the functional outcomes of woody plant systems on landscapes versus uh, non-woody plant systems. So grasses versus um, shrubs and trees and you know, other woody plants and their impact on on soil, on, on how a soil is. There's a great book that uh, S.J. Eyre released in 1963 called Vegetation and Soils, A World View. And it really did a great job of going, he went around the world and looked at what impact different vegetation communities have on a soil. And this these cores that my friend and colleague Graham Hand took um, years ago demonstrate from these same soil what what influence a a blue gum plantation or eucalyptus blue gum plantation um, has on a soil right adjacent to a grassland and those of you who've worked in this sort of field in agriculture will have witnessed that already but i i just wanted to put that forward and then when we're talking about carbon sequestration which is often a topic that comes with this tree thing um, that there's different ways that these different organisms sequester carbon. You know, the majority of carbon that comes through a tree is sequestered into the body of a tree, into the woody tissue. And it's relatively easy to manage, um, uh, to measure. Soils, on the other hand, as many of you would realise, um, um, is more, soil carbon is more difficult and more expensive. Um, it's, more, it's more invasive uh, to test. Um, but the other thing with soil, uh, with soil carbon is that the majority of soil carbon that we see um, actually in increase comes from grasslands because the majority of the carbon that comes through a grass is exuded as a polysaccharide exudate, as a, as a, as a liquid carbon exudate. It's, there's, no woody, there's very little woody residue as a result of that carbon flow. So they're things to, to, to consider on their influence on soils. When we look at layouts, so this is one that we've been working on in California on the on the, just north of Santa Barbara. Um, this is a south-facing stretch of the Californian coastline, so that's Highway 101 and the Amtrak line between Los Angeles and, and um, San Francisco. And this is a project we've been going to for a few years. We've done a lot of workshops there, kind of like what we've done with Greg, um, although uh, it hadn't hadn't had the kind of development that Greg and his family had been involved with at a for, on a forestry layer. 
So it's basically bare hills, um, apart from zone, the, the part that's marked four in the middle where there's um, a, a Californian live oak forest up on the hillscapes there. Um, and what we've tried to do is look at, which is why I've got this slide up, is just to capture uh, the different ways that, and the different layouts that can be integrated into what are hillscape um, pastoral landscapes, which, as we know, um, in your part of in New Zealand, um, that's the majority of the landscape is pastoral. And so how do trees fit into that? Um, and how do they fit in even around our, our, our homestead envelope as well? Because that's something that um, people don't necessarily strategize or consider very closely. And so we want to have a look at that as well. So in this case, we've got the sort of classic farm forestry, as I would call it. So block plantings with the outcome, uh, the, the main outcome being um, timber production. Um, then we've got uh, revegetation, and this is often where we've got either stuff that we're filling in in places of lower land capability or their remnants, as in the case here, a bit of both. Then we've got this sort of idea of silver pasture with different layouts of that, belts in isolated trees, in rows and so on. And then we've got shelter belts, which I know having travelled to New Zealand so many times, that's a really strong feature of a lot of landscapes in New Zealand. Um, and then we've got orchards as well, another strong feature, particularly in areas like around Hawke's Bay and whatnot. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of orchard and vineyard production and so on. So that's how that's assembled in there. Then there's the sort of assembly within the assembly. You know, you're looking at um, what the layouts might, uh, what goes where, but then what do they look like inside? And these are some images of where we've used a, an Australian patterning of layout called the keyline layout. This is this geometry of row formation is defined to try and create a fall from valley towards ridge. So it sort of goes against the natural drainage patterns. And so you're using the row alignment as a means by which to increase rainfall retention and spread that more evenly over more naturally dry parts of the landscape. And so we've done that a lot. And then these are a couple of projects. These are both olives and there's a little bit of uh, forestry on this uh, mixed species forestry that we've done on the um, uh, timber plantation, I should say, that we've done on this steeper slope as well um, in different spots. So this is uh, Geelong Grammar and the old Shell oil refinery. I planted, I planted these in, this was in 2000. Yeah, around 2000. I did this in these plantings in 1999, 2000. We planted about 60,000 trees at these two sites. These are down in Geelong. And this is what I call an alley farming. So this is more suitable to the flatter floodplain type landscapes and particularly landscapes where there's uh, cropping involved and um, larger mobs of livestock. And you, you've got those shelter needs and you can see sort of to the north there of the top photo, that's what the landscape looked like. It was just basically an empty plain. And we've gone in and put these trees in. And the trees, the tree rows are aligned, as you can see in the diagram. We've got the X factor, which is the headland, because we've got we've got machines running through here. So we've got to accommodate those machines, both in terms of the headland structure, but also in terms of the width of the between the, these, uh, in this case, three rows of trees every 60 metres, 
that measurement was a factor of us going and measuring the, the equipment, the, the farm equipment, and trying to work it out so that we could optimise their spread at the same time as try and get as good a um, shelter as we could. Then within that, there's you sort of delve in closer, you look at the, the meta layout, and then you come down and look at the layouts within the layout, and then you look at the the what happens actually in the row. Are we, and this is some work that I did in Vietnam in the mid-noughties uh, when I was working for the uh, World Cocoa Foundation, and we did these um, highly... Um, uh, well, highly complicated uh, multi-layer, some people might call them syntropic agroforestry layouts where we've got you know, uh, about 20 different species all nested in with each other with, the, with each one of them working with and towards a, spe a specific set of goals. So in 2005, we could grow um, a crop in between the rows, but by 2006, that was largely over um, because of the growth rates had sort of come over. But these species are all working in with each other. And that's, of course, what happens in a, in a more natural setting. And then we've got this other approach. Um, this is a planting I did in 1998. And this is what we call an inter-row layout. So I grew really fast. So you've got two lines on the outside there and the sort of gum trees in the middle. This is a site that gets quite cold, frosty, and snow. And um, we wanted to grow some, we wanted to have a try at, at seeing if inter-row cropping, which is where I'll grow one far, or two, um, so the A rows are those of uh, a very fast growing species, in this case, Acacia dilbarda. And then in the middle of that row, row B, is where I've got something slower. And the faster grow, growing trees are a nurse and create a light well, which then the smaller, uh, the slower growing trees, which are more frost sensitive and so on, have gone up. Ordinarily, um, well, if I grew those trees in the middle by themselves, they would be dead in the first season. So there's that nurse tree thing that you can get. So you can sometimes push the envelope as far as climatic limitations by by some of these arrays, which is what I was looking to demonstrate there. So going back out to the sort of going back up again, uh, looking at the layer at the different layouts, well there's different there's there's a whole array of ways that we and reasons and the alignments that we put trees upon and one of those is uh, hedgerows or along roads. Um, in this case uh, what I've done is I've built a road which is an in, what we call an inslope road that inslope row is road is on a gradient and so the road surface actually is a catchment drain for the dam uh, so if you look at the 2021 photo over there in the bottom corner this whole dra this whole road falls at one in 300 and it harvests water off the road surface and fills that dam which is a two million liter dam but then along that, once you create that, then that creates a natural line of subdivision. So that's also becomes a laneway for moving stock, but then it also becomes a natural place to then put trees along, which is what we've done. And uh, so that's another um, potential layout. Um, then we've got, again, going in again, what are the layouts within the layouts? Well, there's the coppice layout. And the coppice is there's a lot of trees um, that we, that we that we manage 
which um, have a um, which grow back once we cut them cut them down, and that's something to as well consider in the overall. Now the the riparian systems are very interesting. Um, and a lot of us are doing work on those. I know in New Zealand with the requirement in a lot of parts now of uh, farm plans and, and the nutrient balancing that goes with that and all of that, 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 these, that flow lines have become perhaps more of a focus than they would have before. And Sure, you can go along, put harakeke along both sides or formium tenax along both sides and that will help. But they also, uh, you know, these, these nutrient flow lines are often channelized and there's opportunities for us to use wetland vegetation to try and fill up that channel and get a better function because often what's happened with the channelization, as you can see from the top diagram there, where that's associated with gross clearing of a landscape, water, water in the landscape is just sped up. And it, it, the, the time that it takes for a raindrop to leave the site is very short. And the landscape then becomes, you know, springs that used to spring don't spring anymore. And um, and when there's a dry period, the landscape dries out quicker because it's it's drained so well. And so when we look at, you know, how we might in an archetypal way reframe that, part of that is filling up the drainage uh, lines with wetland vegetation, you know, all of the usual suspects, the typhus, the phragmites, the scirpus, the, the juncus, the cyperuses, all of those. But then also coming out with that with, our, with selections of native or exotic vegetation along there, some stuff for timber production and so on, such that we're able to really get a strong core of protection around that riparian strip and, and on it goes from there to help be the bottom of the landscape that that is more resistant to the loss of water than what it would be currently. Um, when it's an open drain, it's not resistant. I mean, humans have been draining landscapes for a long time. We know how to do that. What we haven't been so good at is restoring them so that now that we've come to this period in history, um, we, we find ourselves needing to. And so that's going to take various looks. This is a um, one that uh, one of my clients did on weekends. He was a working in corporate and uh, he'd go out to his farm, he bought a $10,000 backhoe and he'd just go and have a scratch and build this chain of ponds and let a bit of natural vegetation, planted some copses and so on, but made a subdivision with a with a, with, a, with enough of a, a buffer that that became a really uh, functional bit of landscape uh, that's working really, really well. Take that to a bigger extent and the word, the work of the Maloon Institute um, in, in around Canberra, um, in, in, near the, the nation's capital. And these are two, this is a sequence of um, what's called leaky weirs that have been put, or you might call them beaver dams almost, rock logs and, uh, uh, logs and rocks that have been placed at natural steps up the, uh, up the, the valley there in the channelized valley. And that then caused a floodplain event. And this is something that we don't have happen anymore is we've drained our landscape so effectively that floodplains aren't floodplains anymore and they are declining in their fertility as a result. And we've built all of our infrastructure on them, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of got a bit crazed. So these are sort of things that we can do um, where, where appropriate. Shelter belts are another system that uh, many of you will be already completely across. 
perhaps not across the structures. The best structures that have been tested have been that 60 degree entry at least angle or face wind facing angle. But ideally to have that um, 60 degree entry and departure angle with lots of different species, lots of foliage types, lots of diversity to to make these homes for lots of different organisms, but also to allow us to um, get a really, really positive shelter and, and take up less space with shelter than what you would if you didn't have this type of structure. We can get, we, can, we only need to take up about three or 4% of the landscape and get all the wind protection if we do it this way versus having a, a, a you know, rows every 20 or 30 metres where we just have a single row of trees. So there's those sorts of elements. Other elements in terms of influence is shade. Um, we did a project for a client a few years ago who was looking at how we go, he wanted to put a savannah landscape in over his 3000 acre hill property in um, East Gippsland here in Victoria. So we did a, a render, uh, uh, an architectural render of a variety of different spacings, a 50 metre spacing, a 75 metre spacing and a 100 metre spacing. And when we did that, that's one. So that's the, that, that does the visual thing because he wanted to see what it would look like. And then the second part of that was the functional analysis. And that's where we looked at how much shade that would cast on a pastoral landscape and therefore how much pasture um, because he wanted to put oak trees through there, how much pasture uh, loss we might get from putting those species in. And the balance then came back towards him being able to make a decision now about which type of layout he went with. And surprisingly, even though the pasture loss or production loss was, was down with the 50 metres, he went with the 50 metres because he liked the look of it better. Right. So sometimes it's it's uh, form over function. Sometimes it's function over form, but where one needs to look at these things. Then we come to our homesteads and what we're doing there. Um, you know, homesteads on farms have long been places where people have done their, well, they've done their own production of food for themselves. And I think that there's still strong cause for that. They're often too, as I've talked with a lot of farmers, they're their oasis. Um, you know, a lot of agricultural landscapes don't have a lot going on with them. They're pretty, they're lacking in diversity and so on. And so this is a place where you can create that. Livestock integration is, you know, is one of the biggest challenges with, um, with agroforestry. And it's been addressed to some degree by, uh, by fencing, but particularly by flexible electric fencing and flexible water systems. And so we have a whole bunch of people who are doing a, you know, clients and alumni that I've got on the screen here who are doing things in really cool ways, whether it's this uh, uh, Andy Darlington's apple orchard in the south of France, which he, he runs his sheep through once those trees are mature to Jimmy Elizondo in, in uh, Mexico, who's got wide space leucina hedges and he's growing leucina. And then we've got these um, leader follower uh, at wide spaced agroforestry with cattle followed by pigs, followed by, by uh, meat chickens and those sorts of things. And then simpler things where we've got an, uh, an olive grower who's trying to make some money while the olive grows. grows. Well, olives and, and lucin, alfalfa are really compatible. 
So we've been able to get an income from growing uh, lucerne here while the olives come up into production. And that they, they don't compete with each other. They work really well together. There's my timer. So I'll just, I've just got a couple more to go if I, if I may indulge. So I'm nearly okay, there. Bro. Yeah, thank you. Head office has said okay. Um, then we go to some of the people that we're working with. Uh, I'm, I'm on the advisory board of a really great organisation called Propagate, which are an investment, uh, agroforestry agri investment company who mostly work in the northeast states of the United States, you know, Vermont, New York State, and so on. And um, what, what we're doing is we're doing these wide-spaced systems and intercrops, but wide-spaced systems all following key line layouts because that's been deemed to, to really fit. And we've got, you know, we've got within that key line, we've layout, we've placed roads on ridges and all of those sorts of things. And we've retained landscape, as you can see. So these slopes, which are outside of the production zone, which are made up of oaks and willows and poplars and pine and so on, maple, they are all um, integrated into, into this, into this overall, uh, overall uh, landscape that we've developed. And then in those landscapes, can they can be managed and thinned to grow cattle or to graze sheep, etc. Um, these, these sort of landscapes on, uh, where we've got uh, the, especially in really frigid landscapes, such as we've got here, those forest belts are critical in winter for, for grazing animals um, to give them that, their protection. Otherwise, we've got to put them in sheds. All right, coming down to the end, um, this is a project we did in Margaret River in Western Australia, or in the southwest of Western Australia. And what we're looking at here was, again, going back to this concept of form and function. Do we go with an alley farming layout where we've got these uh, north-south uh, rows of trees or do we go with savannah? And doing the, doing the renders to, to simulate that um, because that then helps someone to go, okay, as soon as I've got that, that visual, I can see my landscape and I can start to see the cues. I can start to see how much shade is being cast. I can start to imagine how would that be to fence to put livestock through all of those things. Can, could I grow crops in this one or this one? You know, there's all of those sorts of things. And so even if you do this yourself with a, just on an aerial photo or on Google Earth or something like that, and just doodle, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fit, something that you can start to do yourself in, t in terms of imagining how this will all be. And then coming down into it, starting to imagine what the species will be. Um, so, and using, um, using methods such as indexes, as we've got here from our book, where you've got a whole range of different um, influences, whether it's the plant's uh, abilities to grow, uh, its tolerances, what its yields are, what its passive functions are, and then looking at a whole range of species and then giving them a score, which gives you an appreciation of those individuals and also helps you to, uh, to determine what species are going to go where and which ones you'd select, which ones you'd bother with. And then starting to do cross, this is some of my, I mean, I'm a pretty shit drawer really, but I still have a crack um, and do, and giving yourself the license to do that so that you can see how these systems start to frame up in your landscape. And 
you know, doing that more formally perhaps because you often your farms are quite big places. So they've got shallow soil, deep soil. What's that all going to look like um, overall? And finally, just a few things on some of our, where we're heading with ground preparation because a lot of people are interested in how you put trees in and all of that sort of thing. So we've always had an issue with the amount of disturbance um, that is done with, a tree establishment and I've, I've been in, or, in the organics industry for since about 1988 now um, so well over 30 years and so that's where I lean to not using herbicides but that's okay that's your thing go for it um, but when we're not looking at using herbicides particularly in landscapes which have uh, which have higher rainfall and where grass is not going away um, there's there's ways and means that we have been able to get around that. Um, so some of the things that we've developed are little uh, rippers, um, sowing that, that we then sow cover crops into. Um, we then use roller crimpers and kill that crop back um, at the G50 stage, which is the growth stage 50 when the plant is really vulnerable and then plant directly into that. Um, other innovations with that, my, um, clients in uh, Catalonia the, 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 uh, at Can Font, they've developed these really cool uh, um, uh, uh, planting machines that plant two rows at a time um, of olives, almonds, forestry, you know, pretty well, whatever you like. And they, at the same time, they install um, all of the, uh, the, the uh, irrigation pipeline, the whole thing all at once. So there's those sorts of innovations which farmers are coming up with. Further that is the adaptation of strip tillage to, uh, as a concept to, um, to forestry development um, and agroforestry development. This is some work, um, one of my alumni in Gautier Grass, who's a consultant to the French Agroforestry Association, and he's growing cereal crops in fescue pasture, which is not something most people would contemplate but using strip tillage equipment to do that. And he's also starting to do plant trees in those strip tilled lanes as well, following cover crop installation. So there's a few interesting things that are going on. And then finally, looking at uh, overyield from, um, uh, from Propagate, which is this really dynamic um, decision-making tool, which allows you to start mapping concepts on your farm as far as different layouts and species complexes and then and then that directly tells you what the cost is going to be, the carbon implications are going to be, what the management requirements are going to be and all and so on. So there's some really cool stuff going on in terms of the uh, of the decision making space. And finally, um, just to give you an indication of where we're heading, this is uh, this is the future as far as marking trees out are concerned, following a robot with a so this is a robot with a little spray can that marks the spot where the tree is going. So we've done a, a plan and then that plan is being give, sent to this robot and the robot runs along and autonomously puts a paint marker in the ground to mark exactly where each tree is going. So I just thought I'd put that in for a bit of for some shits and giggles. All right, so that's what I've got. Um, thank you. Oh, and that's us, Gregorians. Sorry to take a little longer. Greg, I'll get out of here. I'll just, uh, I'm going to look at the word couple in the Aussie dictionary, Darren, to see if it means 10 as opposed to two, like it does here, mate. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but, mate. Um, anyway, hey, they, they're 
love what you're sharing there, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, I did feel instantly guilty when I asked you to talk about trees in 25 minutes, knowing um, that typically you'd probably spend dozens of hours um, in depth just to just to yeah. get out a small part of what's in your brain. So really yeah. appreciate the effort there. Thank you. Um, and um, hoping that that's really starting to, you know, get people's imaginations firing. Um, both at that kind of conceptual level and what's possible and also, you know, the sort of the practicalities and creativity that might be required yep. to, to get yep. some of these going. Yep. No um, I will also um, share uh, the links to the Regrians website and things like that so that people are aware of um, uh, just, I probably should have covered this in the introduction, but um, Regrians have a, um, there's a 10 week online farm planning course um, which runs kind of in a semi-regular fashion, I think. Um, Darren's also almost completed the Regrarian's Handbook, which is um, some of the photos that we saw there in that. And I'm really excited to um, see that come to fruition. And the first few chapters are available, I think. Um, and if you want to know more, you can check out um, the website, which I'll chuck in the link in the chat quite shortly. So um, just a quick comment. Awesome to see a couple of questions coming through there. We're going to hold off them until after Greg's done. And I did see one question that came through in the chat. So just a reminder to please use the Q&A function um, to make sure we catch that and we don't miss it. Um, and please, if you've got questions that are sitting with you right now um, that Darren's provoked, please chuck them into the Q&A while Greg gets going. Um, and we'll make sure we're going to do our best to, um, to come to that. John, have you got something to quickly jump in there with me? Yep, just before you introduce Greg, I just want to also just plant the seed, guys, for those of you that are, that are on the um, webinar live, uh, to think about what you'd like to have covered in a more specific fashion in our follow-up webinars with this series. So this this webinar is obviously, you know, it's very much an overview in a short time. There's going to be lots of questions, probably more than what you came with. Have, have a think about what you'd like to have covered in future webinars and what specific topics and also who you'd like to have cover those topics and we can also get the, those um either through the uh, chat or through to uh would contact a quorum sense be the best one sam yep it would actually so we can all put that in the chat as well um to give an email address brilliant that was awesome, awesome. great thanks Jono. and uh just to quickly introduce greg so um some of you will know that I spent a couple of years working with Greg and Rachel at Mungarara Farm in Hawke's Bay um, up until a couple of years ago. Um, and that was a real privilege um, for a huge amount of reasons. Uh, seems like since I left, Greg's really put his foot on the pedal and um, stepped up a gear. So no comment on um, my influence on that, whether I was holding you back there, Greg. But um, really just, you know, the one of the things that's real special about Greg is just his vision um, and commitment to you know, to pushing the boundaries and pushing the envelope, as Darren was saying. Um, and so thanks so much, Greg, for, um, you know, taking the time to prepare something and, and be with us today and just really looking forward to um, what you've got to share. Over to you. Uh, you might have to unmute. Sorry there, Greg. Um, yeah, it's a share screen. I'm disabled share screening. Do you want to let me share my screen, Sam? I think we can manage that. Sam's muted right now, but there we go. Go. No, it's still not allowed. Here we go. Are you going to share it for me, Sam? Yes. 
Yeah, just in case your connection struggles there. Okay, cool. Hey, yeah, well, um, thanks very much, guys. And um, yeah, great to hear those words of wisdom from Darren and even chucking in a bit of Tareo Maori there with his harakiki, which uh, is uh, yeah, certainly a plant that we've, we've used lots on, on Mangarara. So um, just an overview as Mangarara, we're um, Elstorp, Central Hawke's Bay, about half an hour south of Hastings and towards the coast, um, 603 hectares of which about 465 hectares is in pasture. And over the recent years, we've been um, including a bit of silver pasture on, onto our land, which is what I'll explain what we're doing um, through this little talk. There's, uh, we're lucky enough to have 35 hectares um, of Horseshoe Lake on the farm. And Sam, if you flick to the next slide, I'll just show that um, the inspiration and that um, we're really fortunate to have some old native forest on the farm. There's about 13 hectares of old forest, which is quite rare in Hawke's Bay because most of it has been cut down or, or burnt down. And so um, just looking at that, um, that, that forest on the farm is, um, is quite inspirational because uh, there's, there's a whole different vibe once you get in there. And I guess our whole vision for Mangarara is really about um, you're trying to restore the balance and, and find that balance between, you know, those those ecosystems that, that did exist and now with uh, five million people in New Zealand and the, our economies to support trying to restore that balance. So um, that's the inspiration. And then if you flick to the next slide, slide Sam, um, you're just looking at basically what a lot of the Hawke's Bay landscape is like. This is just on uh, Middle Road which is the road we go up every time when we're heading up to town. And fortunately this year, because um, that, that photo is probably taken, um, looks like that for the last couple of Februarys, it's been pretty dry and barren. Um, this year, thanks to a bit of, bit of rain over recent weeks, it's probably got a tinge of green, but um, you know, given, given the heat we get, it, it won't last long. And so the real opportunity that um, we see at the moment is around um, planting silver pasture. So if you flick to the next slide, please, Sam. Um, over recent years, we've just been, you know, aware that um, there is a real opportunity around the, the ETS and, and the carbon um, story in New Zealand. And so I think Sam um, certainly helped nut out our sort of original planting densities to you know, so that we achieve that 30% canopy cover, which qualifies for claiming carbon credits. And so, although it's not the primary driver of what we're doing with our planting program, it certainly is quite a, um, an attractive option these days because, um, you know, at the moment there, there's quite a lot of money um, to be made there, which I will explain in a, in a um, slide that comes up. So this is just a view of uh, the planting that we did last year in 2021. And um, you can just see that we're on reasonably, that's a reasonably flat paddock and we're sort of going into easy sort of rolling hill country at the moment. And so um, over coming years, we want to continue to, to plant you know, our hillsides. And you know, we've been doing some modeling with some support from AgriSearch and Palmerston North and scientists, Alec Mackay and that. and um, you know, we can see that you know, our farm, even before we start accounting for soil carbon, could be sequestering at least five times as much carbon as what we're emitting. So there's, a, there's some real opportunities there. So next slide, please, Sam. 
Um, so there's there is a whole lot of reasons why why we're doing this planting, and you know I think if New Zealand's opportunity in the future is to to be you know high quality, high integrity producers of protein to the people of the world that can afford it, then our animal welfare and um, yeah and all those sort of things are going to have to improve so that we you know are providing that really niche high quality product that that they need and and so you know from those pictures of those dry barren hawks bay hills which um admittedly do have their own kind of beauty um you know it's not very friendly for animals sitting in a, in a hot hawks bay summer and so you know by providing providing shade and shelter to our animals i think that's you know becoming part of a whole um, thing that is, is essential and going to be required of us in the future. So um, there is that animal welfare issue. And then obviously there's a, a biodiversity crisis on the, on the planet. And, and so by creating more of the silver pasture and trees, you know, we're creating habitat for insects and birds and a whole lot of diversity of plants and just trying to um, recreate natural cycles and you know nature is our guide and trying to trying to learn from that and, and trying to get some of those natural cycles back operating again nutrient cycles um, you know that have, have been basically ignored over recent years because we've been getting so many of our inputs from a, a trip to town and buying something out of a bag but I think those days are, are becoming a bit limited. Um, Sam we've lost the, the screen is it still there sorry i i got um, tricked by the i got tricked by the dual screen and i thought you were seeing the full one and i think everyone was seeing the um the small version so hopefully that's better right yeah so just working through those i might just go onto my own there we go um so yeah and and the other thing is um nutrient cycling that was one of the the things that really got us thinking thinking a bit differently probably coming up to 20 years ago and you know, with, with trees taking nutrients from deeper into the soil profile, bringing them up, dropping leaves, and uh, just creating some more of those natural nutrient cycles is, is what we're, we're hoping to achieve and, and using some um, nitrogen fixing trees as part of the system. And then aesthetics are definitely part of it because I think you know, ultimately you know, we want to be driven by love of the land and the environment and what we do as, as you know, our guiding principle. And so, you know, we're just, just trying to create a, a more beautiful world, beautiful space. Drought fodder, um, it's gonna come in really handy here. Um, a book, Restoration Agriculture by Mark Shepherd, you know, got me thinking about, you know, the different layers that we can pr pr be producing on rather than just, you know, off our pastures, you know, stacking layers of production onto the farm. So that's another thought and, and drought fodder is gonna be a big part of it. Sequestrant income, um, we'll go into that shortly. Timber income, yeah, we've just, just bought a sawmill, lots of opportunities for timber. We've been planting nuts in the rows. Um, ha having the trees is part of creating the whole story about our regenerative journey at Mungarara. And so, you know, it's part of our marketing, um, a lodge on the farm. It's just, it's creating somewhere special and um, hopefully it won't be that special in the future because everybody's going to be doing it. But um, it's what we're doing. And, and I guess an interesting one, which I'm sure um, Darren would have some more information about is just, you know, the benefits to the soil, you know, keeping, you know, the sun off um, our soils during those hot summers has got to be beneficial for soil microbes and, and the health of the soil. 
And then there's all the water issues, which we haven't got time to go into now, but it's got to be some benefits there. So next slide, please, Sam. Where was, what was the next one? Just while that ticks over. So just briefly, what we're doing is, as we've gone to 20 metre rows, because that's the calculation that we've made to, um, for at this stage, largely poplars or oak trees to spread out and cover about 30% of the canopy. And the other requirement for us to claim carbon credits is that it has to be no more than 15 metres between the drip lines of the trees. And so these trees, assuming they're going to sort of um, have a radius spreading out from the trunk of about three to four metres, um, they will then qualify for that um, within those guidelines that are required. Trees are six metres apart and um, we've gone with deciduous trees so that they drop their leaves so the maximum amount of sunshine can get through onto our pastures through the winter. And they're planted north to south again, trying to optimise the amount of sunshine that's getting on the pastures so we, we still get, um, get that pasture production. And, and it's a pretty cheap and effective way to go. We just bang a post in at the end of each row of trees and then uh, attach a, a wire to that and drag it along and just use fiberglass posts to hold support that wires. And um, I haven't included in here, but we've been using KiwiTech hydrants. And so we'll just go um, at 90 degrees angles to those row of trees and just mulplower in a water line. And then it just pops up. You just lift your hydraulics on your tractor and put a hydrant in there and that's your water line, which you'll have a hydrant every second row as your animals go up the right, up the laneways. So it's a pretty simple thing. And, and you know, I think that's costing us about $1,000 per hectare to implement that system and um, adding plenty of diversity. So next slide, please, Sam. Um, it's also been quite beneficial for our grazing management. Uh, this would be a mob of about 182-year-old Angus heifers. And so we can get some really good animal impact with our grazing there. And you know, because we've got water right through the paddock now, um, it is really beneficial to the um, our grazing management and, and it's pretty easy. It's, it's kind of like a KiwiTech um, system and that, you know, it's, it's just, again, a single wire that um, we drop and they just go into the next break. So really good for stock management and it's working really well. And just with our, our single electric wires there, once the trees get up to a decent size, we'd be able to run sheep um, in those blocks as well. And um, they just graze underneath the wires. So or if you wanted to do this program while you're running sheep, then I guess you'd probably only need a second wire to keep, keep them off the trees while they got established. So next slide, Sam, please. Um, yeah, this is, while you know, I don't believe the price of carbon is gonna continually go up forever. And a really interesting feature of this with the carbon price over the last couple of years, I um, happened to sell a few of our carbon credits at that, um, it's my little timer that my time's up, so. But um, yeah, that, that was about the start of the, the global COVID pandemic. And I thought, oh hell, the, the global economy is gonna shit itself now. And so bailed out of what carbon credits we had and um, it's only gone up ever since. But um, so that's where it's at at the moment. And um, you know, the futures market is, is looking even higher. So just the next slide, please, Sam. 
just just showing you know from that uh, planting that we're doing at the moment on the left hand we're just looking at the number of years and the second row in is is just using lookup tables the amount of carbon that they you get credited for um per year that those trees have been in and i mean i do expect this to train uh, to change because you know that is assuming that it's basically i guess blanket covered but at this stage, as long as you're achieving that 30% canopy cover, you um, can claim carbon credits based on those rates. And yeah, the figures on the right-hand side is at the current carbon price of $85 a tonne. Um, that's how much you're earning per hectare per year. So it is quite ridiculous. And um, yes, you can understand why a lot of that uh, beer Hawke's Bay Hill country is disappearing under pine trees at the moment. But yeah, we can achieve a similar income without um, having to give up food production and you know our farming because I think that's been forgotten at the moment. So what do we have another slide there, Sam? Yeah, this is this is from um, an excellent book by Eric Pondsmeyer, which I'm sure who Darren would know well. Um, and just you know the carbon sequestration potential of different um, management systems and and silver pasture agroforestry is right up there. And you know, my calculations um, over the majority of the New Zealand pastoral land, and um, Sam helped me do this. I think you know, we used an average um, figure of about 10 tonnes per hectare per year. That would offset 100% of New Zealand's um, carbon emissions you know, without having to plant a pine tree or before we even start reducing our, um, our emissions. So, a massive opportunity and I think you know it, it ticks all the boxes so it's, it's a golden opportunity for New Zealand so yeah back to you guys. Great thanks very much Darren and um, I mean Greg here we go that's my third blunder for the day sorry for um, getting the screen wrong there I had um, I had two screens up and I I thought I was sharing the uh, full screen one and I wasn't so Gross. my apologies. Um, hey, thanks again, Greg. That's um, that's an awesome overview um, of, of what you're up to and kind of like there and actually just really scratching the surface um, of, of what's going on at Mangarara. But um, yeah, really appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, now, I'd just like to, um, I'm just checking out the chats and the quick Q&As there. Um, so I might hand over to Jono for the first, um, to kick us off with the first question, but I'll just encourage, um, everyone that's been listening uh, and there's quite a few of you which is great um just to you know those questions that have been rumbling through your brain as Darren and Greg have been sharing make sure you get them into the Q&A there um we've got sort of certainly 20 minutes with um with Greg and potentially 30 with Darren to, to get through a bit of stuff here and um we'll make sure we share some links and follow-ups afterwards but um over to you Jono. Yeah cool thanks Sam um the top question here is from Findal Probst and his question is, where can I find some information, and this is directed at both of you guys, um, where can one find information on suitable species for particular contexts? Um, and I know there'll be links that Sam will put up, but have you guys got any go-to places? You first, Aaron. Sorry, just have to click my um, thing. Um, yeah, uh, look, um, I'll just share the screen for a moment. Um, there's when I, when I generally talk to people about that question, um, there's two ways I go. Um, 
one is that there are a, a number of resources that natural resource management groups, whether they're government or non-government, have produced around the world. Um, I think I've seen some in, in New Zealand. So take a look at those. They are mostly directed towards, um, towards native uh, plantings, uh, native species. This is one example. So we, we recreated this table from a revegetation guide here in one part of, um, of Victoria here in Australia, um, where they created, uh, or catchment management authority as they're called, they created this, uh, this document which was shared with landholders to help with that kind of decision making. Um, but as you can see, or you might be able to see, um, the majority of those species are, um, are, are local, uh, indigenous species. Now that may not suit what you, where you want to go with things. Um, so one of the things that I advise people generally is to go and look around. Um, you know, most landscapes are not um, exactly like uh, what Greg put before, where you've just got rolling hills that seem to go forever, where there's absolutely no um, vegetation above 30 centimetres and that has woody tissue in it. Um, it's, um, you will find species about. And I think if you're going to be a tree grower, it helps to sort of um, become a crop, or get across the species that are available to you and that other people have already tried. You know, lots of people are tree people. And so whether it's in town, the towns that are close by, you know, just driving around, looking in the parks and the gardens and the street trees and driving down, especially in older parts of a town, you can see all the different species that people have planted. And that gives you some indication as to what, at least climatically, may well be able to work with you. Um, and then it gets a bit more nuanced from there. Um, going also to field days and all of those sorts of things are really, really helpful. And um, hopefully there's, there's those sorts of events which are going on. And even if it's a field day that's on, on uh, a particular form of agricultural development, it's likely that that, and it's in your district, it, it, it gives you an opportunity to go and walk around someone's property and pa perhaps pay attention to other things that are going on there as well, like their tree planting. Um, but with that comes you needing to build a body of knowledge about what you're actually looking at, what species are. So you have to get into a bit of species ID and there's a whole host of books around that um, that can help you. I have to go back to um, my friend Rowan Reed. I'll just go to a, another presentation I've got here. Um, uh, Rowan Reed um, uh, wrote this book or wrote two books. Um, he co-wrote this book in, I'm going to say about 1992, called Agroforestry in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and it's a, I would say it's still a, a no, I'll just make that to the front. It, it, I would say that's still a pretty current book um, in terms of layouts and stuff. There's not a lot of new under the sun, I would say, broadly, um, about where to plant things, what, what the general array of particularly exotic species are. Um, that's... So that, that book still has a, a fairly high degree of currency. Um, J. Russell Smith's classic um, Tree Crops of Permanent Agriculture, which was first released in 1927, um, is, uh, is, is definitely a classic. And it, it deals more with the kind of species which give a direct livestock or human 
um, production. Um, so it yeah, so it's really good from that perspective. Not so much in terms of the assemblies or the layouts, but hopefully we've been able to deal with that. And then I think there should. I would love to see more books like this by Rowan Reed, where we're looking at. So Rowan has. Um, developed a really special agroforestry-based property in um, in the Otways here in Victoria. Um, about a set, it's it's probably as close to New Zealand in Victoria as as you can get in terms of its climate and landscape and all the rest of it. Um, and he's written uh, he's written about forestry or growing trees through the view of individual species. And I, I really appreciate the way that he's done that because that species has its own story and then it has its own relationship with the way that we interact with it. And that's part of the one, I think that's one of the great things about um, being involved in tree production is that every individual species is very special, just like every grass, like every species special. But, you know, when, when we look at trees, there's just all of these additional layers of consideration and value that, um, and I, I, I would love that there were books like this that were, um, or profiles that were written on every valuable tree species, because it would help answer that question so much more easily. Yeah. I'd just add to that, that um, in New Zealand, our, our local farm forestry association is of uh, a real resource and, and that's sort of been my go-to has been around going to those old heads have been doing it for for ages and and they're usually more than happy just to to share their knowledge and their learnings and um and their failings along along the way and so um yeah get along to farm forestry there's the tree crops association as well and like darren said there's there'll be field days and um get in here and soak it up awesome thanks and i think um i think this topic will definitely be one that we'll follow up with in a subsequent in terms of trying to tap into that New Zealand specific tree knowledge. Um, so if anyone's got particular ideas of people that they find excellent on that topic, um, please chuck them in the chat and Don and I will see what we can do to track them down. Um, next question for me sitting there was one that I um, that came up for me too, which is from Dylan Ditchfield here around working out pasture, pasture suppression versus tree spacings is um, Dylan's put it, or basically, you know, what's that balance where you can, how do you, how do we figure out how we can integrate as many trees as possible or, or what that balance is between integrating trees into the landscape and not compromising pasture production, like where's the sweet spot, so to speak, uh, and what can we do to work that out, and I guess it's going to differ depending on, um, I know from doing, from your course, Darren, you know, there's sometimes your light's your limiting factor, sometimes it's water, etc, so if you could maybe quickly step us through that, and then Greg, you might want to share how you've Kind of found that balance. I might, I might leave it with Greg to start with, if that's okay, because uh, I'm just going to yeah. look for a particular image to maybe describe that some of the options. I mean, there is scientific research on this. Um, I'm just looking at a paper at the moment called "Estimating Canopy Closure and Understory Pasture Production in New Zealand Grown Poplar Plantations." Um, that is from New Zealand Forest Research Institute. Um, First publication, May 1999, and I know there's there's other scientific research out there, and um, and and yeah, and and then and using your own sort of intuition a little bit, and and you know what we're doing here is definitely an experiment, and but you know 
I, I imagine that those sort of systems that uh, when they're doing that research didn't have the sort of intensive holistic, you know, grazing management that we're doing now. You know, uh, our ability, I guess, to uh, it remains to be seen is for, for animals to eat eat the leaves and um, that, are, that are dropping through the autumn. And so there is scientific research out there. You know, it is showing varying degrees depending on density of, of perhaps loss of um, production and and even some quality. But I think you know we're also going to gain a lot too from um, you know you all, I already see that uh, during our hot dry summers, you know the, the only green grass is where there's a bit of shade from the trees and and no doubt we'll be we'll be creating a whole microclimate. You know the the moisture will, will be held and um, you know within those tree row, rows the dew in the morning will be there longer and um, so so there's there's going to be some some real benefits like that too and and then that's before we go on to if if we all started planting a few more trees what that might do to the whole biotic pump and um, those hydrological cycles which you know we've basically stuffed up by denuding our landscape of trees so you know, it's quite exciting to see you know, what might be possible if, if we revegetate the landscape again. Just building on that a bit, um, this is the agrarian's workplace, which we use to manage um, our liaisons with close to 4,000 of our members from about 85 countries around the world. So it's a sort of a private network that we manage. And it's a professional development network made up of um, people involved in agricultural production as producers or advisors. Anyway, um, uh, Harry Green, who's one of our alumni and uh, um, from Propagate, one of the th I just wanted to build on that question of because it's often, well, I see that question as being as much about you know when we're establishing plants, uh, trees. How do we how do we have it so the grass doesn't take over, especially in landscapes which are dominated by you know fescues or really strong bromes or um, phalaris or coxfoot, those sort of really strong winter active uh, perennials um, or, or or just aggressive annuals, and how do we manage that? And you know a lot of the United States um, is United States of America is dominated by fescue, and there's a lot of people having a bit of a crack and. One of the things that these guys are doing is doing having a regime of cover crop um, and then using conventional farming equipment such as hay rakes. So growing it, if you're going to convert an area, say, to trees, um, actually have a cover crop phase in that, which then might be part of a pasture renovation phase as well. And then you've got a strip of trees which you're putting in. So you're taking advantage of that little renovation phase you might say and then with that coming along and um, chopping and uh, and dropping that uh, that cover and then using hay rakes with a bit of a as you can see here a bit of a rubber mat that's just been mounted onto the side which as you run along it side casts the windrow of of uh, of crop cover crop residue over so you you're sort of growing your mulch which is which is not a bad way of going and that's been proved to be a, a, a very effective um, uh, strategy in landscapes um, uh, so yeah that that we've worked with over there so i just wanted to throw that in um, but it's 
Um, the other thing to consider is, um, you know, when we're looking at suppression is, is actually changing the soil biology by using things like mulch, like woody mulch, spot mulches or mulches along the um, entire growing strip. Um, you know, grasses prefer a bacterial dominated soil ecology. Um, trees prefer a more fungal, sap saprophytic or, or um, decomposing fung fungi dominated soil environment. So if you can put those wood chips down, it's a bit antagonistic immediately to the bio biological requirements or the ecolog soil ecological requirements that um, grasses prefer. So um, that's another thing to do. And that often is best done in advance of the tree being planted. I think you've had a bit of a play with that too, Greg, um, which is why I wanted to sort of you, you, you have a better, better set of answers for the locals than I do perhaps, given your years of success and failure, because that's like you say, that's part of the journey. Well, failure is the wrong word. Learning is probably a better word. Yeah, learning has definitely been um, trying to plant some of those trees in a fescue pasture without um, proper weed control. That that has been a learning, and um, and so I guess you know our, our easy out on that because you know we are planting a few thousand trees each year, and although um, we could go around with a, you know we've got a, a chipper and, and put wood chips around, it'd be a pretty big big job. Um, so a, a bit of a, a spray pre-planting and, and maybe a follow-up is, is a, a quicker and cheaper solution to um, get those trees away without that, that weed competition while they're still young. Awesome. Beautifully answered. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I've had three text messages come through from people that haven't been able to make the webinar that know that you two are speaking and it's one that's dear to my heart i'm going to go ahead and ask it um and the canopy plains you know a lot of you guys who know the canopy plains center pivots have come in and trees have gone out and this question it, it's really based on two things one how do we incorporate trees um not just for ecosystem function where there's center pivot irrigators but two how do we do it in a way that animals have shade because it's shade is something that seems to have been forgotten about in our industrial, you know, um, takeover of the landscape here in Canterbury and other parts of the world. Can you guys speak briefly to that? Aaron, where you go? Thanks. I'm just uh, going to a map. Uh, just bear with me. Go back to share. I was in the United. Um, I'm in the US because I had a um, a conversation with a someone this morning on our webinar. So I'm just going to go west because I know it's really easy to find center pivots in the United States because they're bloody everywhere. Right, so <laughs> that's easy. Uh, let's get rid of some of this shit. Uh, all this is. No, no. Um. Well, the, probably the, oh, the and when I say that, they're bloody nowhere to be seen. Um, let me see. Well, I'll just draw it. So if if I've got if I've got a center pivot, I mean most center pivots have a size. Um, just bear with me. Uh, most most center pivots um, are are limited in size. Um, they they generally 
will operate in a sort of a, a semi arc or a full full circle, um, but some 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 section of that circle. And if if we go back to the slide that I showed about the structure of a shelter belt, ideally being where you've got this sort of sixty degree entry and departure angle. Well, part of that that I know here in Victoria at the uh, Hamilton Pastoral and Veterinary Institute, Rod Bird did a tremendous amount of research on the structure of shelter belts and their impact on wind in terms of distance. And the general formula that came out of that was that it's 10 to 20 times tree height, right, in terms of, of effect, right? So if you've got a a shelter belt which is of this structure um, and let's say it was the the maximum height of that shelter belt was say 10 meters well then you should get between 100 and 200 meters of wind protection as a result of that now so if we look at the dimensions of something like this here well then they're you know, most of our landscapes are subdivided um, by surveyors and surveyors love using squares because it's easy to do that, right? So landscape fr frames some of it, but often these are these systems are framed within square paddocks, right? So you will often have these corners in centre pivot installations which are outside of outside of the outside of the, the the scope of the irrigation. So when I look at that, I go, okay, well, depending on what the dimension is of this square, um, there's possibilities there to put multi-row shelter belts around the perimeter that would, um, depending on the diameter of this pivot, would potentially give a fair bit of protection to what's inside. So therefore you don't have to sort of, oh God, I have to throw my, you know, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so beholden on having trees in my landscape. I now have a conflict over whether I need to get rid of my pivot or not. Um, maybe look from the outside in and say, or oh, what can I do to protect the center? Um, so there's that. The other thing that people do, um, which is I've, I've seen a number of people do, I've not done it myself, um, center pivots have a height where they run through. So there's certainly the prospect that if that pivot's running through and here's the wheel, right? Well, here's the wheel um, running through like so. Um, and then it's got, it's got its boom and then it's got the sprays. Well, there's a height there and there's nothing stopping you going and putting trees or, sh or shrubs in this case at a height that you can either manage or ideally they just max out below that there's you know there's a bunch of stuff that'll do that now the same rationale as we've got here is that if we've got um if we've got you know uh, lines of of vegetation which are which are going to have to be concentric um inside of here then they may well be able to be spaced um, such that they as well give that protection. Because if that's, say, three or two and a half metres high, well, most beasts aren't two and a half metres high, right? Most beasts are about five foot at the shoulder max. So if you've got livestock in here, well, then you're, and you've got these two and a half, 
three metre high shrubs, well, then they're going to afford a bit more protection as well. So there's a few ways that you can kind of attack that. Um, and uh, uh, one gentleman in Victoria um, created what was called the Jamison Spiral as a planting regime. And it sort of goes around like that it wasn't with a centre pivot, but it sort of it just comes to mind. And it was a spiral that um, whose uh, objective was to um, allow uh, rotational grazing to occur in such a way that you that so they, these rows are like two hundred meters apart or so, and you would rotationally graze sort of in going in or cut hay and then turn in the middle and then go back out again. So you had these swaths, but inside it. So that's the direction that we're going. So our grazing goes stop, stop, you know, break, 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 break. And then it comes outside, it, it comes back out again. So we're going in all the way and then going back out again um, in the opposite direction. So there's, you know, you have to be creative, but as a very basic starting point, I would be looking at the, at the perimeters um, that don't fit in the square. Brilliant. Thanks very much for that. I love that. Um, I was just thinking about all the contractors having to drive around in circles in the paddock. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. those kind of designs, but... well, there's an architectural principle of mystery. Um, you just don't know what's around the corner. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> makes it a bit more interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not really. Uh... <laughs> Um, on a probably the, the most related question here, uh, we're talking a lot about um, shade and shelter. There, there's a question from Steve Hart on um, what of the medicinal value, uh, medicinal and mineral values of the plantings for stock, you know, over and above the fodder value. So, um, any data on that? And yeah, just thinking about that, particularly from a pastoral context. Well, I think um, most of that is unfortunately folklore. Um, that's where a lot of it comes. I'm sure that there's probably some papers out there, but I don't think too much attention has been put into that, unfortunately. And we do see animals um, self-medicate. Um, you know, there's that, uh, um, and that that is, you know, when we look at um, the work of the late Mark Bader, um, who had a company called Free Choice Minerals, I mean, a lot of his was built around that matrix of, of, um, of, of livestock stock going and self-selecting uh, individual uh, buffered mineral trays. Um, so there'd be one tray that had phosphorus, one that would have manganese, cobalt, copper, etc., and they'd be mixed with some buffering compound. And then the animals, instead of having a stock lick, they would self-determine what would go. Now, of course, you will go into some places and livestock for whatever reason will go and self-select to go and eat poplars today. Um, others will go and eat the ends of pine, pine trees. You know, they'll go and eat the bark of trees. So there's always been that element of self-medication, but in terms of, um, of, uh, of there being a, def a definitive book or guide which which says all of that, I'm not I'm not aware of it, but uh, there may well be. You know something about that, Greg? At all? I mean, you, as a, as a grazier, you observe these sorts of interactions all of the time, surely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and on Steve that asked that question has a lot of knowledge on this sort of stuff. 
as well. And so I certainly couldn't um, probably add to his knowledge and experience, but, you know, just what we're finding of just being recently involved with a scientific um, trial on the value of Tagasasti tree lucerne on East Coast Hill Country. And so there was, you know, the data was taken and, and the nutritive value of Tagasasti has been taken. So there'll be a, a research paper on the net about that at the moment. And um, yeah, and I mean, another one that, I, that we noticed that the stock love here and that we are planting in between our, our bigger trees is, is the Harakiki you know, they, they love chewing on that. Um, and we're also planting between our, our carbon and our big timber trees, um, a Japanese fodder willow. But um, again, I, I don't know the nutritive value of that, except the, the stock love of it. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Can I stop share? Yes, I can. Sorry. Have we got time for one more? Greg, are you still in, in Darren? I'm good. Yeah, go for yep. it. Cool. Um, let's go with Brian's question. What are your thoughts on carbon sequestering by trees? Carbon sellers sell the entire amount on carbon sequestered as coming from pollution when a larger percent comes from the forest floor as a natural process. Mm -hmm. I'll be digging a hole here. Yeah. yeah um... I'm been, uh, I've just um, finished the draft of, um, so we've just finished writing the uh, soils chapter of the Regrarians Handbook, which is about 470 pages, I think, at this stage. And the last section of that that I wrote was planned grazing. And um, that caused me to go way back in time and sort of look at the lineages of planned grazing going right back to the French and the Scots and so on in the 1700s and then look at the Germans in the 1900s and Andre Vassan and and uh, all of those people right through to Alan Savory and, you know, all of the, the, the people that many people know about and follow and have been influenced by. And part of that journey um, took me to a bloke called Dick Richardson, who's a South African grazier who, um, who's a fairly interesting cat and looks a bit outside of the box and um, doesn't mind having a crack. But he, um, he and I were riffing over... Um, over this very topic. Um, and that sort of led me to that, sharing that slide earlier about the difference between, which I've had that slide for a decade or so, where we're looking at that cross comparison. That's from a 1963 University of Wisconsin study, which considered the organic matter cycling of oak trees in an arboretum versus the prairie in the same arboretum. And, and they studied that where that organic matter was. Um, and anyway, Steve and I were looking at it from the, oh, sorry, Steve, um, <laughs> Steve Hart before. Um, uh, uh, Dick and I were talking about it through the lens of, all right, well, the next obvious question in that is, do we have uh, decomposition systems or do we have decay uh, or digestion systems? You know, decay versus um, digestion. So when we look at, um, uh, woody plant landscapes, they are just that. They're, they're decomposition-driven systems. And decomposition systems are systems where a lot of the carbon that falls to the ground is quite quite accurately is um, it goes back into the atmosphere uh, through the respiration processes of saprophytic fungi. So we understand that. They're just like us. They take carbohydrates in 
um, either through the air or through the food, um, and then they uh, and then they uh, breathe it out. Right, it's, you know, it's part of that goes back out. So yeah, so there is a, and that's part of the reason why forests, when you clear them, and and a lot of people have done that in New Zealand, where they've gone and recovered pine plantations and then converted them into into dairy country or whatever. Um, they've gone in there, and it's not like the the soils are miraculously deep and and better as a result of the pine plantation. Most of the most of that carbon that has come through that organism has gone into the organism. It hasn't gone into the soil, right? So that's that's a case in point right there. So whereas if you go the other way, if you've got a perennial pasture and you've got that. Well, that's why we have lay, lay systems, while we've always had lay pastoral systems where you have a phase where the pasture is grown, maybe six, seven, eight years, and then and because that is a digestion-based system, but we didn't understand this until relatively recently that, um, that uh, non-woody plants, the majority of the carbon that goes through them is exuded out the root system as a liquid exudate. And that liquid exudate is digested by the soil by soil microlife, right? So it's a not a decomposition pathway; it's a digestion pathway, and the same pathway happens with the animals on top of the ground who digest that grass, right? So it's a very they're very very different ways that organic material, which is a byproduct of photosynthesis, um, is 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 managed and is cycled. And so, you know, so when we look at grasslands, we have that lay system because we've cropped it, cropped it, cropped it. Cropping is an exercise which oxidizes carbon in soil because we, whether we spray it or whether we, uh, whether we do no-till or whether we do uh, conventional uh, cultivation, it's an oxidization system. So we have to go back into pasture in order to capture back the, the the losses and that's been something that people have done for a long time but we just haven't i suppose it hasn't been as well understood because we haven't understood as much about um well rhizodeposition as it is called as uh, people call it you know the the different elements that um, plants are exuding to basically drive the well they are the they are the conductor of the orchestra of the soil um, they drive what goes on. The plants are the kings here. They're the interface between the between the atmosphere and the lithosphere, and they drive the game. And the, we're just understanding more and more and more about that. The secret life of plants, as as, as we know from the book, uh, plant communications, um, which are chemical and uh, and so much we don't understand. But that's that's where I get to with that question. Um, that um, you can see you can see just by the actions and you don't need to know much or you just need to have a couple of eyes to be able to see that really beautiful greg do you have anything to add to darren's comments you translate pretty well no no awesome. master <laughs> i can see definitely the pull to have darren on the webinar so on that note Guys, um, Darren, Greg, Sam, thank you so much for being here this afternoon and for your contributions, your preparations, your willingness to share your knowledge. Um, it definitely, you know, it's, it's going to go out a lot wider than the participants today. So I just want to acknowledge you for 
um, giving your knowledge and time so generously and to the participants as well who have come on and asked such brilliant questions and um, taking the time to be here and participate it's um it's really humbling so again i can't emphasize this enough we really are leaning on you the community to guide the direction of these webinars um, rather than just sam and i thinking about what we'd like to learn about we want to know what you the community want to learn about and then we're going to go about bringing the people in that are going to be able to speak to those specific topics so from here on guys we're getting really specific so get those um, comments through those ideas through um, and we'll, we'll make that happen so thank you again very much for being here and we'll wrap it up for today